The United Nations estimates that more than two and a half billion people get their protein from seafood, but fisheries around the world are collapsing under the pressure of overfishing. The Pacific is the last great tuna resource in the world, but what can be done to protect it? Philippa Tolly travelled to Busan in South Korea, where more than 32 nations gathered to try to find a way to protect one of the globe's most important fisheries. Busan is an extremely busy port. Early here in the morning at the fish market, the fishing boats are actually pulling up alongside and unloading. In front of me at the moment, there are just dozens of plastic boxes packed with ice and packed with squid. Alongside, another ship has just unloaded many, many, many yellow plastic boxes of mackerel. The fish being landed in Busan are part of a huge industry, and the tuna section of that business is based on the fish that live in the western and central Pacific, an area that stretches from New Zealand in the south, out east in the direction of Pitcairn, almost as far north as Japan, and west in the direction of Indonesia. Nearly 60% of all the tuna consumed in the world comes from these waters. Nearly two and a half million tons were harvested last year. As the boats come alongside, small portable conveyor belts are set up to whisk the boxes from the boat onto the docks and ready for auction. The majority of tuna caught in these waters are the small skipjack variety used for canning, but other larger species are destined for use in raw fish dishes such as sushi and sashimi and premium canned products. These are highly lucrative markets where a top-grade big eye weighing upwards of eight kilograms can end up being auctioned in Japan for prices of around ten thousand New Zealand dollars each. Unlike regions in the rest of the world, these stretches of water are described as the last unspoilt tuna fishery. This is the last abundant tuna fisheries、um, that's left. If you look at the other areas, the stocks in this area are still in the best shape. It is the last frontier for tuna resources globally. There's no argument about the fact that a lot of the, the other oceans are actually dying out. In- But can this area remain viable in the face of increasing global demand and dwindling fish numbers elsewhere? What's being done to prevent the collapse of this vital regional resource, to prevent its future looking like that of other world-famous fisheries, such as the cod stocks off Newfoundland and Canada? By the time the Canadian government closed the North Cod fishery in 1992, fishing had emptied a previously bountiful area of the Atlantic to such an extent that, despite the passing of the years, the cod stocks have not recovered and may never do so. So, what future faces the tuna stocks of the Pacific? Scientists have been calling for cuts to the number of big eye caught for years, but their advice has been spurned. This year, a reduction of 30% was the target. While some limits are now likely, is enough being done soon enough? It really depends on this issue whether we fish down the stock、uh, to such an extent that future recruitment of young fish is affected. If that happens, you very quickly get this positive feedback in in the system with、um, you know, a low. Population of adults, a declining population of juveniles, and when those things meet,、um, the population is is really in trouble, and you can get commercial collapse of the fishery in a sense.
Dr Hampton says as yet, scientists are not calling for the same level of cuts for yellowfin tuna, but it could only be a matter of time. Yellowfin is, uh, uh, we would judge to be not in quite as serious situation as Big Eye, although we're about to do a new assessment of yellowfin next year. It wouldn't surprise me if we see a, a deterioration to some extent in the condition of yellowfin next year. The uh, Persane fishing effort, effective effort continues to increase. And the yellowfin catch is not increasing in response to that, which indicates that uh, the population is being depleted. So I think yellowfin could well be in a similar situation to Big Eye if nothing is uh, done to, to, to pull back on fishing mortality, uh, particularly of juvenile yellowfin. It's these stocks the Western and Central Pacific Tuna Commission was set up to protect. It manages all highly migratory fish stocks within its jurisdiction, including tuna, billfish, such as swordfish, marlin and sailfish, mackerel and sharks. The Commission works in accordance with the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and the UN Fish Stocks Agreement. The Commission's Andrew Wright says these provided an important springboard for coastal states. Until the United Nations Fish Stock Agreement the negotiations on that was concluded in 1995. Uh, Pacific Island countries felt they didn't really have the uh, supporting legislative uh, institutions in place uh, that would be uh, in their interests to collaborate with distant water fishing nations. Once the fish stocks agreement was concluded, then they felt that they had a better, better international legal framework to be able to uh, develop a institution that would apply to the management and conservation of tuna resources in the western central Pacific. After years of talks, the Commission was finally set up with its headquarters in Ponape in the Federated States of Micronesia, and members met for the first time in December four years ago. The big difference between this Tuna Commission and the four others around the world is the high level of coastal nations involved. Seventeen Pacific nations and territories are members of the Commission, and they form a bloc, all belonging to the Forum Fisheries Agency, the regional body that helps its members sustainably manage fish resources inside their exclusive economic zones. The FFA's Deputy Director-General, Transform Angarao, says being able to form a bloc helps its members be able to negotiate on a more equal footing. The small island countries and members of the FFA are dealing with the largest, the most powerful, richest countries in the world. And so there's inequities in terms of of resources like this, the science, the economists, the lawyers and fisheries managers and and our small island countries there's a paucity of resources in terms of the horsepower that they need individually to deal with these powerful countries. So FFA is a conduit through which island countries form their positions and they're supported by the Secretariat but the tuna organisation for this area has been balancing on the edge in danger of falling into the same hole occupied by other regional fishery management commissions around the world. They're largely seen as incompetent and unable to do what they're established to do, preserve tuna stocks. The Cook Islands is one of the few Pacific nations that also belongs to the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission, which deals with stocks in the east of the Pacific. Its Director of Offshore Fisheries, Josh Mitchell, has been involved with both commissions and is less than flattering about this Eastern Pacific Tuna Commission. It's significantly different. The Eastern Pacific um, RFMO operates by consensus and very often it can't come to decisions, especially important ones. 
they're trying to get measures in on, on Big Eye Tuna and, and finding it very difficult to, to come to agreement. I think when I look at how we operate in the West and Pacific, we certainly have a better system. I think our invention text helps us. We have a, a voting procedure, and I think that really helps people come to agreement much more easily. Josh Mitchell says while no one wants to use the rather complex two-part voting system with a threshold of 75% to gain acceptance, the fact the procedure is there does provide motivation to reach agreement. He says in contrast, the Eastern Pacific Tuna Commission has had to leave it to individual countries to close their fisheries in an attempt to cut the catch of big eye, but he says it's uncoordinated and may have no impact on restoring stocks. It was against this background that nearly 500 delegates and observers gathered in Busan, Pacific and foreign fishing countries and industry representatives. The declared aim, to try to save the commercial viability of the Western Pacific's largest tuna species. Honourable Chairman and ladies and gentlemen, since its establishment in 2004, the Western and the Central Fishery Fisheries Commission has taken a wide range of measures for ensuring long-term conservation and sustainable use of the tuna resources. In particular... As the host country, South Korea's Vice Minister for Food, Agriculture and Fisheries, Dyok Bae Park, opened proceedings talking of significant progress, but also the need to do more. Within a short time, a spokesperson for the South Korean delegation was speaking of a need to reach agreement to make sure the organisation retained credibility. Young Hyo Ha from the fishing company Dong Won also stressed the need for a balance between conservation and utilisation of the stocks. I think a uh, government delegation should consider uh, all of the members here uh, will consider uh, uh, the conservation aspect and uh, the in- in interest of industry together as well. During failed discussions in previous years, foreign fishing nations had often questioned the science behind predictions the stocks were on the point of being overfished. The Commission's chairman, Glenn Hurry, moved quickly at the outset to quash any repeat of such debate. Big Eye is not overfished at the moment, but overfishing is occurring on it. There's just too many fish being taken out of the stock. That's been the advice of the scientific committee for the last five years, and it is time that we actually started to take some responsible action to reduce the pressure on Big Eye. But it is difficult because a lot of it is caught in association with persaining for skipjack. So we have to try and balance the need of continuing the skipjack fishery but protecting the Big Eye resources. And it's a bit of a challenge because the industries are dependent on different age classes of the Big Eye stock. But we do have good science. We do need to make responsible decisions and questioning the quality of the science at times doesn't help. The science has now largely been accepted, but the convention which set up the commission also draws on the principle of adopting a precautionary approach. It's that principle which is used to justify the attempts to extend management efforts from exclusive economic zones into international waters, where, as the Asian nations point out, anyone is free to fish. The fishery is worth over $2 billion to outside nations, many of them Asian and European. And the environmental group Greenpeace is highly sceptical of the will of any of the distant water fishing nations, as they're known, 
to act in the best interest of the future when it comes to preserving big eye and yellowfin and implementing the required level of cuts. I think it's been quite clear that the scientists themselves are saying at this meeting that even with a 30% reduction that they're recommending is not going to be enough to deal with the overfishing. That's from the scientists' mouth that we would have expected would be the minimum uh, recommendation or um, I guess the, the, form, the basis of decisions in which this body or countries around this table will be able to factor in. But unfortunately, you know, I think the industry and the economics of the industry and what um, um, and the lines the government are taking here is is definitely painting a different picture and it's I don't think that particularly the Asian nations have the interest of this fishery, the future of the interest of this fishery at, at heart. Many of the environmental campaigners feel it's an unhappy combination to have industry representatives as part of the delegations discussing how to save tuna stocks. But a tuna processing representative was among those who argued that unless action is taken by those involved in fishing in the region, measures to preserve stocks are likely to be imposed from outside. Mike McGowan, who is with Bumblebee Seafoods, the largest canned seafood company in North America, wants to see governments show the political will to guide each nation's local industry. The message is getting through, it's just there's, um, there's conflicting interests. Certainly industries in any particular nation will put pressure on their governments to try to get them the best deal that they can get them, just human nature. But you need to rise above the politics, the self-interest, and manage the stocks properly. Is the fishing industry one that's known for rising above self-interest? <laughs> They're very entrepreneurial, so it, it, that's why you need the government to help control the industries. If they're left to their own, their business people, they're gonna, going to uh, go out and fish as much as they can. Mike McGowan points to the collapsing bluefin tuna industry in the Mediterranean as an example of how not to do things. He believes that region could be looking at a possible CITES listing by the UN, which would ban trade in bluefin as an endangered species. Greenpeace, with its huge lobbying effort over tuna, was constantly mounting publicity-attracting events at the Busan meeting, including this vigil early on in the negotiating process. At the end of the first day of discussions, a sign is put on the pavement outside the meeting venue with Save Tuna spelt out in candles. The protest has been organised by environmental group Greenpeace and supported by a local environmental coalition. Earlier, a small contingent of South Korean police walked by and are keeping an eye from a reasonable distance. The banner has been placed on the pavement facing up to the rooms where the delegates are staying in the hope that they will look out and see the message being delivered. Bumblebee's Mike McGowan says if those involved in the Western and Central Pacific don't work together to plan the fishery's future, then it will be outside international organisations and NGOs that will dictate what goes on. It's here on the supermarket shelves where lobby groups can have a real impact. Their campaigns can encourage consumers to boycott certain products and only buy tuna that carries a certified sustainability sticker. While the main focus in Busan was on big eye and yellowfin, the industry has to consider the impact it has on other wildlife. Susan Moore of the BirdLife Global Seabird Program says one of the biggest problems is that very little is known about the total number of birds killed through fishing because little information is fed back from the vessels. 
but the impact on albatross is clear. We are facing a situation where, for the albatross species, uh, 19 of the 22 species worldwide are threatened with extinction, and the fishery that's operating here, which is mainly a longline fishery and persane fishery, does impact quite heavily, at least in terms of longline, on albatrosses and petrels in the temperate zone. So how does that happen? For the long line, when the line's getting set, there's often several thousand hooks that are set over a period of several hours. And while the line has been fed out, individual hooks which are baited with either squid or fish go into the water and the birds have the opportunity at that point to seize them and if they're unlucky they get caught on the hook and drowned. So it's the magnitude of the fishery and the extensive effort that's occurring that poses a risk. Susan Moore says mitigating measures can be taken such as setting lines at night, weighting the hooks so they sink quickly and attaching streamers to the lines. But the millions of hooks set every year means some birds are likely to be caught, and very little is known, for example, about how several threatened and endangered petrel species are being affected. Turtles are also caught on these lines, including the critically endangered and highly migratory leatherback. Measures to avoid catching turtles are still being discussed, but the fishing of sharks is an increasingly serious issue, in particular the practice of finning for the lucrative fin soup market. CNN followed Taiwanese fishermen as part of its investigation into an industry it estimates sees nearly 100 million sharks killed around the world solely for their fins. Catching sharks can be extremely lucrative. A single whale shark fin can sell for more than $1,000. The rest of the shark is pretty much worthless, so to make more room for the valuable fins, fishermen often resort to a practice called finning. Cutting off the shark fins, then dumping the bodies into the water while they're still alive. They can't swim, so they sink to the bottom and die. All of this to make more room for fins on the boat. Saramaya Tungiri deals with the oceans policy for the worldwide fund for nature from Suva, and he says little is known about how many sharks are caught or the impact it's having. We've actually seen and heard about uh, vessels that uh, have been licensed to fish for tuna, also actually targeting shark fins. I'm not saying the, the, the whole shark, but just the finning where the hole is like just covered with shark fins. And, and it's, it's a scary thought when you think about that. And uh, it's also the whole idea of the importance of shark as a species in the, the bigger system of, in terms of the, the, the ecosystem. In an effort to get more information, the Commission approved measures to gather more research on sharks caught, including the key species mako, blue shark, threshers and ocean whitetip. But along with the bycatch, there are other valuable fish stocks under the Commission's management, particularly swordfish. Swordfish came close to being fully exploited between Australia's east coast across to New Zealand in the late 90s. In response, fishing was reduced, and the stocks in that area appear to have bounced back. But now the Central Pacific has become the target of new fishing activity, principally by the Spanish. Scientist John Hampton says many are wary of letting a resource be stripped out of the region by a foreign fishing fleet. It's a species of growing importance in the region, uh, of growing interest to Pacific Island countries who see that as a, a, an alternative uh, resource that can be exploited in a, in a sustainable way. It's a valuable resource, a uh, fairly high-priced product, so it's, it's something that is, is attracting increasing interest 
and I think Pacific Island countries in particular uh, are quite cautious in allowing uh, a rapid build-up of fishing effort in the southern part of the convention area that would be targeting swordfish and perhaps reducing the, the abundance of that fish stock before they've had an opportunity to participate in the fishery. Restrictions in the last few years on the number of Spanish vessels failed to limit the catch, which has gone from around 700 tonnes in 2004 to over 4,000 three years later. The head of the New Zealand delegation, Matt Hooper, from the Ministry of Fisheries, says only a one-year deal could be achieved. Talks were severely hampered after new information, quadrupling earlier catch sizes, was revealed by the European community at the last minute catches that are four times higher than those previously reported and by the fleet that is catching by far the largest amount of swordfish in the region, uh, it does completely undermine the science that has been carried out by Australia and New Zealand and others um, at considerable expense, I might add. Uh, and it does undermine our ability to put in place effective measures based on that science. But it's not only the Asian nations and boats from as far away as Spain that are eyeing the fishery. Other foreign fishing fleets are pushing to gain access to the tuna stocks in the central and western Pacific, and Senegal, El Salvador and Mexico have been granted cooperative non-member status. Ecuador was denied the same status after objections from the United States, which is a member of the Commission, but it can still fish under its current licence in Kiribati. Greenpeace's Lange Torrenbao says there are real concerns that the bad fishing practices that saw other fisheries cleaned out could be used in this region. We've seen the Latin Americans um, putting their cards on the table for the last two years of the Commission, basically asking that they are viewing this, this region as the last viable tuna fishery that's left. And, um, you know, we have seen and we have proven that they have come in fishing legally and illegally in the Pacific, the Latin Americans. Uh, we have seen a keen interest by Senegalese, Panama, Vietnam. There's quite a lot of countries that are now in the Commission asking for permission to come into this region. So everybody do recognize that this is the last viable one. And But the problem is that they are migrating all of their problems from the other overfished oceans that they historically have been present in. And our worry is that they're just migrating their problems down here. But even industry representatives see it as a balancing act, as processor Mike McGowan explains. Some of the uh, vessels from the, from the eastern Pacific would like to come to the western Pacific and, and they want to become cooperating member, non-members. And uh, it's a very difficult issue to, to address uh, because if you, if, you're, if you are inclusive, uh, then they need to abide by the rules then. But you have the same time you need to control capacity. So it's a very, very difficult issue, and I'll leave that to the governments. <laughs> Despite what appeared to be an extremely windy and rock-strewn road, a way through was found. Japan was no longer challenging the science, and Korea was encouraged by the chair to accept some of the less palatable measures in order to gain the kudos of being the host nation when an agreement was reached. While lobby groups believe it falls short of the target of a 30% cut starting next year, the fact that any arrangement was agreed was warmly welcomed by the head of the Tuna Commission Secretariat, Andrew Wright. I think to be able to, to get a commission such as this with such a diverse range of interests to uh, first of all set an objective of achieving 30% reduction in fishing mortality on the base which is, aligns with the advice from the scientific committee that we currently have before us, just getting them to agree to that objective is a fairly major achievement.
The moves for next year include a 10% cut in longline fishing, a closure in both the high seas and coastal waters for two months of any activities involving fish attracting devices, and all purseiners or net fishing boats will have to keep juvenile fish on board, which means they will reach storage capacity more quickly. One of the biggest breakthroughs is an agreement to close two high seas pockets from 2010. These are areas of international waters wedged between the exclusive economic zones of nations such as Papua New Guinea, the Federated States of Micronesia and Nauru. These measures fall below the target for 2009, but Andrew Wright says it was never particularly likely that 30% would be achieved in the first year. It was a high goal to expect to be able to achieve an immediate 30% reduction in the first year of a measure in any case just because there's so many um, issues associated with it. Not only is it uh, very difficult to, for governments to liaise with industry to be able to achieve that necessary reduction but also the coastal states in the region need to be able to put in place um, their domestic measures to be able to align with the, the decisions of the Commission so that uh, the fleets that op- they're, they're affiliated with or affiliate with them through access to their EEZs um, can also, uh, the, the, the arrangements that they have with them can also be reflected in those agreements. There are obvious challenges as to how robustly the Commission can monitor the measures that were agreed to achieve cuts in the catch of Big Eye and Yellowfin. Moreover, attempts to stop boats hiding their catch by transferring it to bigger freezer ships in the high seas got nowhere. It had been hoped to require these transport ships to take on catch either in port or nearby if no suitable berthing facilities existed. Such measures help not just to monitor the fishing activities of Commission member nations, but those accused of plundering the high seas, pirate fishermen. Eugene Pangalenin of the Federated States of Micronesia says everyone wants to rid the oceans of these illegal, unregulated and unreported vessels, known technically as IUUs. Really, to close the gap in freedom of the high seas fishing and to ensure that there is no havens for IUU fishing. We need to stop IUU fishing. They are probably the most destructive fishing activity in the world, taking the resource and not held accountable to it. Whatever the action put in place to prevent overfishing, questions remain about how much is really known about the complexities and interactions between the species in this enormous stretch of water. Scientist John Hampton admits that much of the research has been on single species, focusing on the stock of one variety at a time, with little room for consideration of how the whole system interacts. Saramaya Tungiri of the Worldwide Fund for Nature also believes more information is essential to be able to move forward. And there's been a lot more fishing that's going on without us really knowing what's there on the ground. And that's the reason why it's really, really, really important to have you know, the data so that we'll be able to make some informed decisions on how we can better manage the shark fishery, the turtle fishery, um, seabirds, and in our case, really important, the, the tuna. For the next 12 months, scientists will be continuing to try to plot fish stocks to decide if the decline in big eye, and to a lesser extent yellowfin tuna, has been at least slowed. If not, Commission members might next year be looking at not a cut of a third, but maybe something more substantial in order to prevent a fishery collapse. That programme was written and presented by Philippa Tolley. Technical production was by Steve Burridge and the producer was Sue Ingram.